The following message was recorded during the Friends of Israel 2011 National Prophecy Conference season. These meetings were held in Winona Lake, Indiana and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more audio resources from the Friends of Israel, visit us at foi.org. The title I gave the, uh, the, the two uh, opportunities I have to be with you is Living in Satan's Today in Light of God's Tomorrow. In the attempt to honor God in the life that I live, I'm, I'm tremendously advantaged to rightly comprehend, and what I mean that, of course, is biblically comprehend, both the character of the present corrupted age in which I live and the character, as, as revealed in the Scripture, of the, uh, the, the, the marvelous tomorrow that God has for me in eternity. Amen and amen. Now, that's a rather... That's a rather uh, truistic uh, proposition, but, but I want to take it a step further because I would suggest that there's a, there's a, a really a, a significant amount of confusion on both those counts. That is, I think even among thinking Christians, and you'll forgive me if there's hubris in this, but my impression is that even among thinking Christians, deliberate Christians, Christians who are very, very serious about their relationship to the Lord, that in the first place there's, there's some, some little confusion, and I'm sure... Other uh, specific points of confusion can be pointed out, but there there is some confusion about the character of this age and how the Christian relates to it, and then a great deal of confusion about the uh, character of God's tomorrow. I'll talk about that tomorrow morning. Very, very briefly, uh, uh, I think that we uh, we tend to render uh, our our concept of heaven has become so abstract as to be quite uninviting. And it's some uh, ethereal world where we float about, and, uh, and, and I don't believe that's what, what the Bible teaches about tomorrow. But what about today? Well, I want you to take your Bibles, and I'm, I'm going to be brief with this. I've done it in the past. I don't expect, I mean, I've alluded to this passage. In Genesis chapter 11, in the, the account of the Tower of Babel. Now, Here's my, my basic working thesis, that as you and I try to understand, and we need to understand the world in which we live, as it's described in Bible, and when I tell you, say world, I mean the cosmos, the fallen, evil, Satan-dominated system, that, that uh, worldview which is generated by and animated by and, and uh, empowered by the, the small g God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. So, how are we to understand what is the character of, the, of, of Satan's today, if you don't mind, the world in which we live? And I believe that Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, is, is hugely important in this regard. And I think it's much overlooked. As a matter of fact, I would suggest that what Genesis 3 is to the fallen human race, that is, if you want to understand who man is spiritually, Essentially, you've got to go to Genesis 3 and contemplate the fall. Would you not agree? Well, I would suggest that what Genesis 3 is to our concept of the fallen human race, Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, is to our concept of the fallen, of fallen human culture. And uh, I, I think that, that what we have here is so basic and, and important. Now, let me just take you to it. You're familiar with this story. And by the way, you know, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, but there's a lot of human history in Genesis 1 to 11, right? I pointed out here before that there's actually more human history in Genesis 1 to 11 than there is in Genesis 12 through the rest of the Old Testament. If you take the most recent possible date of creation, it's about 4,000. 
Genesis 12 is the call of Abraham in 2091, so let's say 2100, so you got somewhere around 1900 years of human history between Genesis 1 and Genesis 11, right? Do you get that? Genesis 1, creation, Genesis 12, about 2100, so in Genesis 1 to 11, you've got about 1900 years. Abraham is called about 2100, Genesis 12, Nehemiah, or Malachi, if you don't mind, the final chapter in Old Testament history, happens about 400, so there's about 1700 years, right, between 2100 and 400 B.C. Does that make sense to you? So there's more human history in Genesis 1 to 11 than there is in the rest of the Old Testament by any standard. There's a lot of human history recorded in Genesis 1 to 11, and yet all we have are these four remarkable stories, creation, fall, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. If the Tower of Babel makes the cut, in other words, if God is, is, is only picking out some very, very significant things, it, it must be and we know it is. We think of it as, the, as the, uh, the, 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 the basis for diverse human languages, to be sure. But I would submit there's something else going on here. And I'll say it again. I think Genesis 11 is, to a biblical understanding of fallen human culture, what Genesis 3 is to a biblical understanding of fallen human race. So let me just take you to it real quickly, and I'll not spend time. But it says, The whole earth had one language, one speech, came to pass as they journeyed from the east. They found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks, bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, asphalt for mortar. And they said, this is what I want you to see, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. It goes on to say a tower whose top is in the heavens. This is not a jack and a beanstalk thing. Obviously, this is uh, however you take that, Uh, whether it's astrology, a, a tower in whose top the heavens are, or if you just take it to mean a tall tower, it was clearly a ziggurat. It was some sort of pagan center for religion. So we're going to build a city and a tower. And notice it goes on to say, uh, let, let us make a name for ourselves. Now, folks, this is Isaiah 14 all over again. This is high-handed defiance of the simple reality, the most, uh, the most, uh, one of the most basic and, 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 and unmistakable realities in all of the scripture, and that is that human history, history in all of its parts is about God's glory and not about man's satisfaction. And, but they are in defiance of this. So they say, here's their strategy. Let us build a city and a tower. Here's their motivation so that we can make a name for ourselves, so we can reject uh, God's, uh, uh, we, we, we can live for ourselves rather than for God and be scattered abroad. But then verse 5 says, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. My proposition is that that is the essence of fallen human culture. That you can distill fallen human culture, culture in high-handed rebellion against God, culture which is all about itself, which is, which is fixated on, on satisfy, uh, uh, personal satisfaction and so on, and, 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 and glorification, deification almost. But you can distill all that there is to fallen human culture to this, a city and a tower. Now, let me just tell you what brought me to this persuasion. What do you care? But I, I, I have had opportunity on several occasions, and I always delayed in it, to teach through the book of Revelation. And um, I, I, every time I do it, I'm, I'm, I'm just profoundly impressed anew at the splendor of that book and the dramatic uh, artistry and and uh, the, just the magisterial drama that God unfolds there. It's a drama yet to come. But what, all, what really struck me 
is Revelation 17 and 18. And I want you to jump over there real quickly. And uh, I'm just going to survey the book of Revelation. I'm, I know many of you are very familiar with it. Many of you know it better than I. But, uh, but Revelation, of course, uh, at the very beginning, God comes to Jesus, comes to John the Apostle, and his, John the Apostle has grown old, and, and, and he tells him that he is to write three there are three sections of that which he is to write. You're to write that which you have seen. That's this remarkable vision in chapter 1. John had seen that same exalted, metamorphosed Jesus one, one time before in his life, you remember? On the Mount of Transfiguration. So there on the Mount of Transfiguration, John, along with James and, and Peter, had, uh, had, had, had witnessed that marvelous uh, had been witness to that time when, when, when God condescended to give them a foreview of Jesus in his millennial, well, his messianic, his, his kingdom glory. So he sees that vision in, John 1, in Revelation 1, and, John, and Jesus says, write the things which you have seen, write the things which are, and that would be the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. But then you know that he says, write the things, this is Revelation 1 and verse 19, write the things which shall be metatauta. Remember that? After these things. Then you go to Revelation chapter 4, and, uh, and, and, and John is, uh, is called into heaven, and he's given a vision of things which shall come metatauta, after these things. So it's clearly in time. So Revelation 4 to 19, if you don't mind, is the story of the, it is the drama which will eventuate in the coming of the long-awaited messianic kingdom. And that story in Revelation, in Revelation 4 and 5, you have these two initial chapters, that is these uh, background chapters where where you have this throne room scene in heaven where the Lamb of God steps forward, this Lamb who has been slain and proves himself worthy to take the title deed to the earth. Remember that? Revelation 5. And, uh, and then in Revelation 6, the actual drama begins. Now here's the thing, and this is what struck me. Revelation 6 to 19 is indeed, as I say, it is that remarkable drama. And, and by the way, the thing that that struck me, that continually, that I come back to again and again as you read it. And I'd invite you just sometimes sit down and read through those chapters with a mind specifically attuned to the way in which God deliberately builds the drama. There is a crescendo of tension and drama that, uh, that, that just builds and builds until finally in chapter 19, the white-horsed rider descends. And that's where we're headed, right? Now here's my point. I lost you. There are only, there, there, the, the only time that the narrative is actually moving forward in the book of Revelation, the, the, the end time drama, is actually moving forward is when you either have a seal being broken or a trumpet being blown or a bowl poured out. Those are the actual historical events. Everything else is setting the scene. And so now you come to Revelation 6 and the seals begin to be broken. And you come to the seventh seal, and it's open, and there are seven trumpets. And then you have a lot of scene setting and characters and, and, and even uh, chronological data and so on. But then, chapter 8, you come to the, to the, to the uh, trumpets being sounded. And one by one, these trumpets are sounded. And again, there's this crescendo of terror and, and, and anticipation. And, and then the seventh trumpet, of course, is, 
is, is the uh, seven bowls. And then you have a great deal of, of, of scene setting. And in Revelation 16, you have the pouring out of the bowls. You can see it. If you look at chapter 16, you'll see that you have these seven bowls that are poured out. And the seventh bowl is where the earth is just shaken to its foundations. Now, here's my point. This is what struck me. You're reading through Revelation, and like I say, you have, you have the seals broken, you have the trumpet sounded, you have the bowls spilled out, and now you come to the end of chapter 16, and, and there's this sense of, of just almost breathless anticipation because the time has finally come and the long-awaited Messiah is going to appear and, and, and that deliverer who was first promised in Genesis 3 is at last going to come in, 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 in victory. And, uh, and yet, here you are at the end of chapter 16. Everything is in readiness. And then you have these two long chapters, 17 and 18. I mean, honest to goodness, if you just make your way through the narrative, you, you, you've come to this, like I say, this moment of just breathless, suspended anticipation where you just wait. And then these long two chapters. And the thing that strikes me about them, if you look at Revelation 17, clearly what's going on here, nobody would, no futurist would deny this, now what's going on here is that before the actual description of the descent of Messiah Jesus, the white horse rider, the Bible takes time to rejoice over and to seriously contemplate the destruction of this wicked anti-God uh, entity, which is Babylon. And I think Babylon traces right back to Genesis 11. But what strikes me about this is that there are two very distinct elements of this wicked... In other words, first of all, in Revelation 17, you have the destruction of what? Religious Babylon, this awful harlot who has ridden on the beast, false religions that have... That have enabled and animated so many godless uh, governments. And then in Revelation 18, you have the destruction of what we call commercial Babylon. So what do you have there? In Genesis 11, let's build us a city and a tower. In Revelation 17 and 18, immediately before the culmination of fallen human history and culture. Well, I, I can't say that, but but, but before that, that uh, uh, fallen human culture is finally erased from the earth, you have the destruction of religious Babylon, that's the tower, and commercial Babylon, that's the city. Does that make sense to you? I believe, that's where I'm taking you, that, that we ought to, when we think of, and, well, when we think of the culture in which we live, and we try to analyze how God sees that. And frankly, given that, what our attitude ought to be toward it, I think we ought to conceive of the culture in which we live as the city and the tower. Now, what's involved? I'm convinced the city is commercialism. And what I mean by that is the notion that man can find happiness in what this world has to offer. And then on the other side of that, and, and of course, when you set out to find any measure of satisfaction 
absent giving God his place, without giving God his place, you are in rebellion against God. And so once you set out on that, on that effort, you are going to contrive some sort of false religion to make yourself comfortable in that effort. Does that make sense to you? I think on the one hand, to be fallen is to be selfish. And so fallen human culture is going to give itself to self-satisfaction, but we're going to leave God out. And because we have been created uh, most fundamentally, most basically, with this need to know God and to enjoy God, mankind is going to generate for himself some sort, every false religion, every, every false religion, gospel, whatever you call it, that has been conceived in, in a demonic mind and then planted in the mind of men is nothing more than an attempt to make us happy in our sin. To help us live with the fact that we are in high-handed rebellion against God. Now, I'm getting a little cosmic here, but I, 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 that, that's, I, what strikes me is that, I'll say it one more time, that when in, in Genesis 11, the city, is, you know, Jesus said, Luke chapter 12, verse 15, that man's life does not consist in that which he possesses. Remember that? Now, you just take a moment and you contemplate the culture in which we live and the culture which, quite honestly, we find very seductive. It's not the easy thing to resist this mentality. And is it not most fundamentally characterized by this notion that I am going to find happiness in that which I possess, in that which I, I, I and, 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 and that is, I think, the city. On the other hand, as I say, the tower, everybody would acknowledge, is is religion. Now, I was going to spend a minute in Revelation 17 and 18 to try and make this point. Let me take you there just very quickly. I haven't got time to, to develop it very carefully, but again, <laughs> I'm, I, 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 forgive me for going back, but I want to make sure you understand. The thing that I, I that one of the elements of this biblical narrative, the book of Revelation, that I find so interesting and compelling is the very fact that now that we have come all the way through the seals and the trumpets and the bowls and everything is readiness, we have this long pause. And God focuses our minds on Babylon. And Babylon is characterized, first of all, as the, the, the harlot. Well, look at it in verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had, who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I'll show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. And in verse 15, we're told the waters are all the peoples over whom she had had influence. And then it says, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now, the kings of the earth, the, the Gentile, you know, time out real quickly. Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, you have the characterization of four Gentile kingdoms which are going to rule over Israel, right? Now, they're not the only before there was a Babylon, there was an Assyrian. Before there was an Assyria, there was an Egypt. And here in Revelation 17, the Gentile kingdoms, which have, in the course of human history, ruled the world, are numbered as five that had fallen and one that was. And those five that had fallen were Assyria and Egypt and Babylon. I'm sorry, the other way. Egypt and then Assyria and then Babylon and Persia, then Greece. The one that was in John's day was Rome, and that one was yet to come and would be a, a seventh, and then even in Antichrist an eighth. But the point is that, so Daniel 2 is, is rather surgical. Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 
Daniel is outlining the kingdoms yet to come which are going to rule over Israel. But the, the fascinating thing is in Daniel 2, you remember how those four kingdoms are represented? Remember, it's an image and these metals and they glisten in the sun and they're much to be admired and they begin very, very valuable, but then they become less valuable but more dependent upon strength. But all in all, it's a great image which, which seems to be awe-inspiring. In Daniel chapter 7, you have exactly that. I think this is very deliberate and very instructive. You have exactly that same succession of four Gentile kingdoms, but now they're beasts, and each one is more monstrous and rapacious than the one before. You remember, and each one is is aberrational. So you have the lion, and then you have the... the, uh, bear uh, with, the, with the ribs in its mouth, and then you have the leopard, but then you have this monster that there's no name for it, remember? And it, it has great iron jaws and great uh, and it claws its enemies to shreds and so on. Now, the point is, and I, this is not new to you, but I want, I want you to contemplate for a minute. Daniel 2, I think, is human government from, from a human perspective. Daniel 7 is human government from a divine perspective. If you go to Daniel chapter 2, you have, you have the same thought, and it's a thought which I more and more take tremendous delight in. But uh, Daniel chapter 2, uh, when the stone cut out without hands rolls out of the mountain and pulverizes this, this image, uh, in verse 34, uh, now this is Daniel, of course, interpreting. Well, he's not just interpreting. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar said, both, tell me both the dream and the interpretation, so Daniel's telling him what he dreamed. And he says in verse 34, Daniel 2, you watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which stretched the image on his feet and its iron and clay, broke them in pieces. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, and the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the th- summer threshing floor. The wind carried them away so that no trace was found. Human government is bound to be obliterated. And that's a, a, an item of hope. And by the way, if you look in that same chapter, when he gives the, uh, uh, matter of fact, this is the verse I want you to see. So I'll just stay in here in Daniel 2. Daniel 2 and verse 44, he, he interprets that. And he says in verse 44, in the days of those kings, now we're talking about the ten kings at the very end of that, of that uh, period of human government. In the days of those the kings, the final days of human government, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall, which shall never be destroyed. By the way, that's the kingdom of Messiah. And have we talked about this before? Matter of fact, we'll talk about it tomorrow because it's very important. But to some, to many, there seems to be, and I've had this thrown, I've I've been challenged in this regard, there seems to be a a disparity between what the New Testament says and the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, when Messiah comes and establishes a kingdom, how long does that kingdom last? Forever. Bless God. It's an eternal kingdom. And yet you get to the New Testament, and three chapters from the end, we're told that it's going to be a thousand years, right? And uh, I believe Paul died without knowing anything about a thousand-year kingdom. Never, never, never confronted by that sort of idea. But you have to understand that the thousand-year kingdom, I know most of you are familiar with this, is only the initial stage of the eternal kingdom. And there is a good reason, and I think we can discern the reason why, that eternal messianic kingdom begins with a, with a stage in which there are yet mortals and yet unbelievers. 
in the kingdom. But that's the first stage of the eternal kingdom. And when Messiah establishes his kingdom there in Daniel 2.44, it's an eternal kingdom. But notice what it says. And this is what I really appreciate. Uh, in verse 44, he says, um, uh, which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It'll break in pieces uh, and consume all these kingdoms, and it'll stand forever. Uh, all right, now go over to Daniel 7. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm changing my mind again. Don't go over to Daniel 7. And there's a little verse here in Daniel 7 and verse 12. Am I confusing you? I think most of you are sufficiently familiar. You can move between Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 with some alacrity and won't, won't stumble over it. But in Daniel 2, like I say, you have this very same vision. It's from a human standpoint as far as their perspective on the, uh, on the, uh, the succession of human governments. But, in Dan- but it says that when the stone cut out without hands rolls out and pulverized, it will crush it like chaff, and it'll be blown to the wind, and it'll never be heard from again. Well, you have that same thought, but it's kind of brief in Daniel chapter t- uh, 7 and verse 12, where it says, as for, it's talking about the time when the fourth beast, the lion, will be destroyed. And it says, uh, as for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now what he's saying is that when Babylon was destroyed, it remarkably lived on in Mudo Persia. We can identify and iterate the, the ways in which the Babylonish kingdom lived on in Medo Persia, right? Including the city. And when the Persian kingdom was destroyed, it lived on in Greece. So it had its dominion taken away, but it lived on for a time in its successor. And that's an interesting story, by the way, because Alexander's uh, tutor, remember Alexander establishes the Greek Empire, and his tutor is, uh, is Aristotle, and, and uh, he was, uh, he, Aristotle was, was rapidly, uh, he had nothing but contempt for other cultures. And he taught Alexander to be that way, and that's why Alexander becomes, became such a, uh, a, a, a missionary of Greek culture and spread Hellenism and so on. But when Alexander went out on his campaign of conquest, he encountered all of these Eastern cultures and he became quite fascinated with them. And he did, in fact, incorporate a great deal of that Eastern mentality, and so much so that uh, his, his, his tutor uh, disowned him. But I say that just to make the point that Babylon lived on in Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia lived on in Greece. Greece certainly lived on in Rome. We always say that Rome never had a culture of its own. It's a Greco-Roman culture, right? So we know that, but, but the contrast here in verse 12 is this. The other beasts lived on, but the fourth beast is not going to live on. The fourth beast, when, the, when, when Jesus comes, and is, so what I'm saying to you is that the culture, which, which I, I believe is being, it's exactly the same thing here in uh, Revelation 17, where it says you have this harlot, Babylon, the harlot, who rode on these beasts, and the beasts are, in fact, the, the, the uh, Gentile world governments which have dominated the world, and she, she, this is false religion. I've got to be quick. I, I spend too much time. Uh, so in, in chapter 17, you have, um, you have the destruction of, uh, of uh, the, the tower, if you don't mind, and then in Revelation 18, you have the destruction of the city, and this is, all, this is so staggering to me. Look at verse 9. It's, it's just, what happens is, just try to imagine this. Try to imagine that, uh, that, that you are, uh, all right, let's say you're just witness to it. You're on a grandstand in heaven, because you will be. And you're looking down, and here the earth is literally crumbling. 
the mountains are falling, fire is falling from heaven, and what is it that distresses the people on the earth? Look at it in verse 9. The kings of the earth who committed fornication lived luxuriously with her, with Babylon, will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, in one hour your judgment has come, and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her. For no one buys their merchandise anymore. The earth is coming to an end. And men are, 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 are their, their, their sorrow is over the fact that, and it lists, verse 12, merchandise of gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet, every kind of wood and so on. I won't go on, but, but the point is that as the, as the world falls it, it falls under the hand of God's judgment and fire falls from heaven, what are, they, what are they bemoaning? They're bemoaning the fact that the merchant ships are no longer going to ply the seas and bring them the, the fine things. Now, I spend too much time. I've got to be quick real quick. On the one hand, what I'm saying to you is I think that if you want to sort of distill what fallen human culture is, Satan's today, it is a city and a tower. And by the way, it's interesting to me, and, and I, maybe I'm making too much of this, but it's very, very characteristic of the Hebrew Bible. To It's a chiastic structure. You have A, B, B, A. It's like you work yourself into this mess, then you have to work your way out. And in Genesis 11, it's let us build a city and a tower. And in Revelation 17, first of all, the tower, Revelation 17, and then the city is, is destroyed. And God is, as it were, cleaning up this mess, and bringing to an end this fallen human culture. Now, I started out by saying, and I have to be very quick with this. I should have left myself more time. But on the one hand, folks, I think it's important for you and I to realize what the essence of fallen human culture is. And it's this commercialism, this self-centered uh, determination to find happiness and satisfaction and fulfillment and significance in what the world has to offer absent God. And, it, and always with that is going to come a false religion which is designed to make us feel better in the midst of our high-handed rebellion. On the other hand, I have to say that I think that in many cases, Christians fall prey to a... I, I think we're a little confused as to how we ought to regard the world in which we live. We don't live in a world which is intrinsically wicked. We live in a world which is corrupted. And God is not only, he's not only given us permission, God's heart is delighted when we do, in fact, enjoy the good things he has given us. In other words, the fact that we live in a corrupted world should never, should never discourage us or, 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 or make us feel guilty about enjoying the good things that God has provided. Now, I, again, I've done this in another setting, but go to Ecclesiastes. It's one of my favorite verses, Ecclesiastes 5. And uh, real quickly, I, I, I think uh, there is such insight, and I like to begin when you're, when you're reading Ecclesiastes, uh, well, the first half of Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon makes a very tightly woven argument. And, and basically what he is arguing is that God is delighted when you enjoy the world he has created for you. God never gave you an appetite, a longing that he didn't intend for you to fulfill. And, but Solomon is saying that 
the only way to enjoy it is to give God his place. And there has never been a man in all of human history who was more well-positioned to ransack the world for all that it had to offer than the man Solomon, right? Whatever the world has to offer, be it money or power or fame or wisdom or pleasures of any sort and so on, Solomon was in a position to access those things. And for much of his life, he abandoned God and sought to, to find fulfillment in those, in those things. And, and he characterizes that search in Ecclesiastes 1.13. I want you to look at that verse, Ecclesiastes 1 and verse 13, where I think this is sort of, this is where he, he begins his, his, uh, his discussion, as it were, and he says, I set my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven, this burdensome task God has given to the sons of men by which they may be exercised. Now, I'm lo- reading the New King James, and I want you to eyeball that verse, if you will, Ecclesiastes 1.13, and understand that regardless of what version you're using, you need to understand that in the Hebrew, he uses the same word twice. Uh, once as a noun and then as a verb. But it's, it's at the end of the verse where he says, after I, I set my heart to seek wisdom and so on, and this is my conclusion, that it is a burdensome task God has given men to be busy with. And he uses the same word, and I think you could read it this way, and this will help. Solomon's conclusion, when you leave God out, this is the conclusion, and he had more opportunity to, to test this than any other man who ever lived. And he says, you leave God out, and life is a sorry business with which God has given men to be busy with. That makes sense to you? It's the same word. Life is a sorry business that God has given men to be busy with. You leave God out, and you, that's a pretty melancholy assessment. But then Solomon works his way through a very, very careful and sometimes difficult argument, but he comes to his peroration in verse 18 of chapter 5. And he says this. I've said it to you before. Now, why am I, why am I in Ecclesiastes? Because on the one hand, I think it's so important to acknowledge that when Satan cast this culture into corruption, it's basically a city and a tower. And there is this notion that we can somehow find satisfaction in this world, absent God, all that the world has to offer, and it's absolutely destructive and wicked, that attempt. On the other hand, don't go from there to the notion that it's absolutely wicked to enjoy this world. Because Solomon is so careful to say, and look at it in verse 18, here's what I've seen. It is good, consistent with the character of God, and fitting, appropriate, to, uh, consistent with the, with the standards of God. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor, which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him. It's his heritage. God is the one who can give you this ability to enjoy. Because he says in verse 19, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth he also, and this is the way the Hebrew reads, he also has, he only can give him the power to eat of it, to receive his heritage, and rejoice in his labor. Not only is God the only one who can give you those good things. And you know, I believe it was G.K. Chesterton who once observed, he grew a little weary of some of men's uh, uh, philosophical complaints, and he said, you know, I grow weary of people complaining about the pleasure of pain, I'm sorry, about the problem of pain. The problem of pain is, why is there pain in the world? Why, if, God, if God's perfectly powerful, perfectly good, why didn't he create a world in which everything was happy? Well, that's another subject. But Chesterton said, I grow weary of people who, who, who talk all the time about the, the problem of pain. What about the problem of pleasure? Why is it that we live in a world that is so absolutely overflowing with things to make the heart glad? 
you know, just very, very silly example. God could have made a black and white world, could he not? But he didn't. Some years ago, I, I, I was driving through, it was a beautiful fall day, and I was driving down the road, and I, I, I stopped at a light, and across the road was just, a, 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 just this tree that was just exploding with color, and the sun was on it. And I sat there, and I thought, you know, the guy who owns that house ought to put up a booth and charge people to see his tree. That is one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. But then I thought, but it wouldn't work because the guy down the street has one just like it. And the guy across the street has another one. And we're just surrounded by these absolute mind-numbing explosions of beauty and goodness and delight and relationships. God didn't have to create that. He could have created us free-floating soul spirits in an ocean of darkness, but he didn't. He surrounded us with all of these good things. And now Solomon is saying that to be sure, the world is full of all sorts of delights. But if you leave God out, you're going to find that life is a sorry business to be busy with. But if you give God the place he deserves, the place he demands, if you realize, here's what it is, here's what Solomon is saying, if you realize that not only is God the giver of all those good gifts, but God and God alone is able to give you the capacity to enjoy them. Because when you give God the place he demands and deserves in your life, you'll find that you can truly enjoy all of those things. And I love the way he concludes. It's one of the verses of my life in verse 20 where he says, He, that is the man who gives God his place and acknowledges that only, not only is God the giver of all good gifts, he's the giver of the capacity to enjoy this. And he says, he, that man who gives God his place will not undo, dwell unduly on the days of his life because God keeps him so See the word there? What do you got? What's the word you got there? God keeps him so busy. Same word. Back there in Ecclesiastes, you leave God out, you're going to find out that God, life is a sorry business that God gives you to be busy with. But you give God the place he deserves, and God is going to so keep you so busy with the delights of your heart that you're not even going to notice as the years go by. Now that's a God. Not only who deserves, but it makes good sense to serve that God. Now, what I'm saying to you is, I think, in Genesis 11, we are introduced to this reality. That fallen human culture can be subsumed, can be distilled to simply this. The city and the tower. And before Jesus descends, the drama, the narrative of that drama stops and focuses on and rejoices over the fact that God's going to put an end to that. And the corruption of the world is going to be brought to an end. But that doesn't mean that even living here in Satan's today, that God does not intend for you and me to enjoy richly the good things that God has provided. We live in a world, I'm going to say it one more time, that's not intrinsically evil, but it is horribly, horribly corrupted. And it's going to take some spiritual discernment and effort and care and attention to make sure that we don't fall into the pattern of the world. But God help us from the other <laughs> wickedness of concluding that somehow it's intrinsically wicked to enjoy the good things God has given us. Amen and amen.